Oh, good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 is where we'll be. If you're new um, or just haven't been paying a lot of attention, we're going verse by verse um, through the book of Hebrews, the sacred ancient text written to a struggling, suffering, persecuted church with an ongoing exhortation to just keep going, to, to hold fast, to draw near, to stir each other up in the gospel. In other words, when life gets hard and when your faith sometimes doesn't make uh, that much sense, you just keep going, right? You keep going. Why? Because Christ is supreme. Because Christ is everything that he claimed to be. Because he's the Lord of lords and King of kings and he's worth it. That is the, the message of the epistle to the Hebrews that we get the privilege of diving back into this morning. I am one of four children um, in the Lester family. In fact, we were uh, five for a while. I have two older brothers and a younger sister. Now, my parents were clearly insane or just not good at family planning, um, which means that there is a four-year gap between each of us, right? So they had my older brother, Jonathan, then four years, then Andrew, then four years, then me, and then Tracy, right? So you end up with this wide gap. They basically just like infants. I, I'm, I'm not sure, and so they got bored, and so they would just add a, a, another one. And so we have varying degrees of connectivity amongst the siblings, right? We have varying degrees of life overlap because the age gap is quite big. But there's no shortage of love and fondness for each other to this day. Praise God for that. Here's what I've realized about siblings as I've gotten a bit older. Very few people in life have the power to cause senses of either security or insecurity in you like a sibling can right? They can build you up to like a bulletproof extent, or they can crush you. They can destroy your spirit. Um, my brother Andrew and I went to a very traditional boys' school in Johannesburg. So boys-only school, it's 120 years old, looks like Hogwarts, right? Um, and I went there for most of my schooling career, and he was four years older than me, so I entered high school in South Africa. It's eighth grade. I'm, I'm 11 years old when I go into eighth grade, right? Because again, my parents weren't thinking, and so they thought, oh, he's good at some, some curriculum stuff, so let's just keep him going. Um, and so I'm this little hobbit, right, even smaller than now, um, and I walk in there as an 11-year-old into eighth grade, and my brother is a junior, right, and he's playing varsity sports and all this stuff. He's kind of like a hero. And so I think this is going to be awesome. I get to just flow in his wake, right? And we get out of the car the first day. He says, don't look at me. Don't talk to me. Don't come near me. I don't know who you are, right? And I was like, what? He's like, I told you. Don't, all right? You're doing it already. Don't. And he heads off. And every time I see him in the corridors, he just looks the other way, just pretends that doesn't, don't exist. Now, the way that they kept a boys' school of about 1,200 boys under control, where you've got 12-year-olds, 11-year-olds, I was only 11 for a month in, in that grade, but 12-year-olds and 18-year-olds on the same campus, they had this brilliant idea, right? Uh, they had an old boy system. So an 18-year-old, a senior, gets a 12-year-old as his own possession to do with as he pleases, right? And this is how they create culture, um, and it works really well except all of the abuse um, that you have to endure because um, it's like basically you go through like three years of hazing, right? And then what do you do when you've recovered from three years of hazing? You turn around and you do it to someone else, right? And so it's this perfect, horrific system. Um, and I got an old boy who was just a complete jerk and I'm a little dude um, and he was just on me. 
and the things he was, oh man, it was, he was just breaking me down, breaking me down, breaking me down. And I'd get home in tears most days, and I'd look longingly across the, the quad at my brother, and he just pretended I wasn't there. Um, to be fair, it was quite hard to see me, um, but uh, just nothing, right? And then one day, this dude was on me, and it was particularly um, upsetting, and it was particularly unfair, and it was particularly unjust. And I'll never forget my brother just walking across. I just saw him coming across the quad. And he just came and stood between them, stood between me and my old boy, right? This is like, this is breaking every school code in the book. And he just said, that's my little brother, and that's enough. And that's enough. And he walked away. That dude never touched me again, (laughs) never broke me down again. And I walked away from there feeling like eight feet tall, right? Even though I was four foot seven um, and not much more than that. But all he had to do was just own the fact that I was his little brother. And the sense of security that comes from that is just so astonishing, right? This sibling dynamic has formed some of the great narratives we have in literature. One of my favorite movies, because I'm a nerd, is called A River Runs Through It, right? Which focuses on a broken dynamic between brothers and the pain that it creates. My favorite novel is called East of Eden by John Steinbeck. What's it about? Sibling rivalry and multi-generational patterns that it can create when, when brothers don't know how to treat each other and care for each other. Steinbeck's masterpiece was shaped by the biblical account, of course, of Cain and Abel, which isn't the only really formative sibling interaction we see in Scripture. There's lots of them. It goes on to some really dysfunctional ones that have multi-generational impact, right? Jacob and Esau, uh, uh, Dinah with Simeon and Levi, Joseph and his jealous brothers, uh, Tamar with Amnon and Absalom. We haven't even got out of Genesis yet, right? And you see these broken sibling relationships that have huge impacts on society. In fact, Cain's question that he asks in defense when God comes looking for his brother of, am I my brother's keeper, continues to be one of the most significant ones of all time. It's one that gets repeated, and how we answer it can result in multi-generational brokenness or in multi-generational flourishing in families and in their lines and in their lineage. You see, siblings have an outsized impact for good or for bad or often for both in the lives of those around them. Why do I tell you all of this? Well, the text today is going to make one remarkable claim about our King Jesus. The writer of Hebrews has described him in such incredibly lofty terms up until this point, right? Reminding the the first hearers of this exhortation that Jesus is better, he's more majestic, he's more powerful than they could ever imagine, offering them the security of the reminder of his sovereignty, of his rule and reign over all things, over his ultimate exaltation in the universe. That's where he started out, but now he shifts to that same Jesus' nearness in terms of how he chooses to relate to us. And it should stun us to hear Jesus spoken of in this way, especially if we've been paying attention through chapter one and we receive who Jesus really is in his exalted state, right? Um, Then the way it describes him at the beginning of chapter two, in the middle of chapter two, should really shake us from our Christian culture slumber and should make us walk like eight feet tall, so super confident in the love of God. Because what does it say in the second part of verse 11? Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers 
and sisters. Now, before we just grab that right out of context and put it on a coffee cup and a bumper sticker and some T-shirts and go uh, claim a promise that isn't given to us, we need to ask, well, who is them? Who is them? Is the, who, who is this talking about? Is this the angels, right? We've spoken about angels a whole bunch. Is he calling angels brothers and sisters? Is he calling the apostles uh, brothers and, and, and sisters, the early followers of Christ? Is he calling them, right, brothers and sisters? Well, well, as we will see in a second, the text speaks of all those who Christ wins for himself, the children of Abraham, all of those who belong to the covenantal promises of God. So listen, this is everyone who is a follower of Jesus. And if you're one of those this morning, this is us. This is us. He's not ashamed to call you sister. He's not ashamed to call you brother. Oh my goodness. We may well be ashamed of the church and the family that it represents. And we may have many reasons of varying degrees of of justifiability for that, right? We may well be ashamed of ourselves, but Jesus isn't ashamed of you. And Jesus isn't ashamed of us. Now listen, he wants for you and for us to stop doing shameful things. (laughs) To be sure, right? But he gladly stands in our midst and says, there's my little brother. (laughs) There's my little sister. I'm not ashamed to be in their family. Friends, as someone, now that I'm a bit older, has realized that I have quite honestly lived for the validation and approval of my earthly brothers my entire life, right? And to be fair, they have not withheld it, so it says a lot more about me than it does about them, right? I cannot even begin to describe the humble confidence that this gives me when I embrace it as true, and the wrestle for us this morning will be to embrace it as true. Jesus isn't ashamed to say, hey, Ross Lester, He's my little brother. What a thought. Okay, what's the context for this and how does this come about? Well, let's just read the whole assigned text for this morning and then make a few observations about what Jesus does for us as our unashamed big brother. Jump back to verse 10 where we finished last week, right? And look at this, one of the most complex verses in all of the New Testament actually. And so I don't have a lot of time to deep dive, but I wanna just show you just a little bit of what tees up this great statement. It says, for in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer. Don't you love that? Jesus is our pioneer. He's the one that goes before us of their salvation perfect through sufferings, right? Jesus is perfected in his role as the pioneer of our salvation through suffering. He doesn't get to escape it. So so here's the context. The people who are receiving this letter are suffering and they're struggling with the tension that Tyler so winsomely described last week, the tension that says, but I thought you said everything is supposed to be in subjection under his feet, and yet we don't see everything in subjection under his feet. I'm still busted, the world is still busted. I thought Jesus was supposed to be ruling and reigning. When is he coming back to make this all right? Why do we still suffer? And as you mentioned that, why did Jesus suffer instead of just ending the suffering in an instantly visible triumphal reign. Why is the ongoing suffering in the world is one of the great questions of apologetics in the world today. 
And Christianity alone has an answer that says, there is a God who joins you in that suffering, (laughs) who participates in it with you and shows you that one day he will bring it all to an end, but in the meanwhile is empathetic to your suffering because he has suffered it himself. Why? Well, the writer says it was entirely appropriate. It was the appropriate means of Christ's perfection. Listen, listen, so we don't commit heresy. Just if you'd listen to nothing else, right, doctrinally this morning, his perfection refers to his fulfillment of his role and not to his formation of character. He's being perfected as the atoning sacrifice, right? Not as the sinless one. It's entirely appropriate that being perfected as our atoning sacrifice, Jesus Jesus should suffer like us. Why? So that he could suffer for us. In order for Jesus to be a suitable sacrifice, he had to endure what we endure. He had to submit himself to the sufferings of life in flesh and blood and had to live through it without sinning so that now he can stand as our perfect representative. Look at how he embraces that perfection and what he does with it, right? He earns that, he's perfected. Look from verse 11, then what he does with that. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. Stop the bus. There's no buses in Austin. Stop the large SUV um, with one person in um, that we're all determined to drive around and clog up. Why is there so much traffic? It's because we have one person per 40,000 square feet of vehicle, right? Um, uh, stop whatever mode of vehicular transport you have. We all have one father? That's unbelievable. So that the intimacy that Christ has with the Father, he makes it available to us. He says, you're not like a, you're not like a foster child in the kingdom of, of, of God who, 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 where we feel there might be a threat in the future of being moved to somewhere else, right? And bless those who foster. What a wonderful picture of God's mercy and grace. But what he's saying is you actually have the same Father. That's astonishing. You have the same one. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. That's Psalm 22, if you're wondering. And again, I will trust in him, Isaiah 8. And again, here I am with the children God gave me later on in Isaiah 8. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but he does reach out to help Abraham's offspring. Okay, goodness me, try stick with me. Four things this morning. He isn't ashamed to call the offspring of Abraham his brothers and sisters, how does the writer go about saying that he displays this, this, this proudness, for lack of a better word, the, this comfort that he has in calling us brothers and sisters? Well, first observation is this. As our unashamed big brother, Jesus shares something with us. He shares sanctification with us. As our unashamed big brother, Jesus shares sanctification with us. 
listen, this is abstract. I'm going to try and make it as basic as possible, right? He says that the one who sanctifies and that the one that he sanctifies are one and the same. So the one who sanctifies and the one who receives the sanctification, right, are one and the same. They share the same father. They are siblings in the same family sharing in the same blessing. And so Jesus earns our sanctification and then he shares it with us. Why can he give it to us? Because we're siblings, And so he receives this blessing from the father and is free to pass it on to his siblings. Here's what that means. The word sanctifies, big Bible word, right? It means to be set apart for holy use. The scripture is gonna tell us, oh, there's some things you can use that are general, right? And then there's some things that are sanctified, they're holy. You only use them for one particular purpose. Now there's two elements to that. The first is about designation, setting that thing apart. The second is about ongoing protection, making sure that no one uses it for something else. You see that distinction? Firstly, you've gotta say, this is for that purpose, and then you have to protect it for that purpose, right? You have to stop someone else from coming to use it for something else. Now, this is Old Testament language. In the tabernacle, there were sanctified items, bowls and altars and stands. They were used only for the sacrifice and worship of God. They weren't used for regular day things. You couldn't use them for your washing up or your eating of soup. They were designated set aside, saying these are sanctified items, can only be used for the holy purposes of worship. Then what did the priests have to do? What was their whole job? They had to be ongoingly protect these items to make sure that they didn't become defiled. No, these are holy, they're set apart, they're no longer fit for the purpose for which, uh, for, for any other purpose except for the one that they were set aside for, right? Now I'm seeing some dull faces. Um, this morning, you're like, yeah, speed it up, dude. That's Old Testament. I don't know. We don't have a tabernacle. Maybe that's too abstract. Let me help you. I love few things more in the dull mundanity of my suburban existence than opening up a new toothbrush, right? When I get to do a late night target run and I get to choose medium, you know, firmness um, because I've got weak gums, guys. It's not my fault. Um, and so I can't go with the hard ones because my gums will, will bleed out and I'll die. Um, but I love opening the new toothbrush. You know why? I look at it and it's pure. It's sanctified, yet to experience the trauma that its forefathers have endured, right? <laughs> It hasn't been through any of that. I set it aside in the little toothbrush holder I have on the side of our bathroom, and I anoint it, right? This is my toothbrush, sanctified solely for use in my mouth, and that is its holy purpose for its entire life. But that designation won't be enough if my kids come along and use it to clean their sneakers, right? or our Labrador's teeth, or the grouting on our towels, which they never do, but if one day they they turned out to be helpful, right? I have to defend the sanctification of the set-apart object, right? Now, that might sound too basic, but this is what it means, right? To set something apart and say, it only has one use. And in the case of sanctification, that use is worship. It has to be kept as holy for worship, right? Did you know, just listen for a second, that the Bible calls you sanctified. You, follower of Christ. You might not think so because you know what you've been up to this week, right? But part of the glory and wonder of the gospel is that you are set apart regardless of what you have been up to. You are just either living up to it or you aren't, right? You might go like, oh man, I I hear you. That's a cool gospel duke, I like it, but... I'm into some really bad habitual sin, man. I just can't break this stuff. 
Well, you're probably not worse than the church in Corinth. And look how Paul greeted them. Paul's going to correct them for being drunk at communion, for being in lawsuits with each other, for having incestuous relationships. And look what he calls them. He says, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. He says, hey, sinny Corinthians, you're sanctified. You're set apart for holy use. You keep forgetting it, and so you keep going back to other things, but that's what you are. He says, you're called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. So everyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord is sanctified and set apart and made holy and given that as a gift by our Lord Jesus Christ, our older brother. Friends, listen. As your big brother, Jesus earned the right to set you apart as sanctified. And Jesus displayed that he has the potential that has the power to protect you from defilement and to present you as fully sanctified to his father and to our father on that last day. Michael, yeah, but I've, I've sinned. Sure, but your big brother didn't. And so he earned the right to set you apart. You might go, oh, I'm still so immature in my faith. My sanctification is slow. Right? My journey of becoming more holy is slow. I keep going back to my old ways, sure. But your big brother is ultimately the one who will finish the good work that he started in you. Because he never went back and he never slid back and he lived the fully sanctified life through which he can now guarantee that his finished work will get finished in you. Remember I said at the beginning that Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? shapes so much of the narrative of humanity. When Jesus is asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? He answers with a resounding yes. Yes, I am. They're my brothers and my sisters and I have sanctified them and I will keep them because I share what I have earned with them knowing that they could never earn it themselves. All right, second one. As our unashamed big brother, Jesus participated in our weakness with us. Not only did he share sanctification with us, he participated in our weakness with us. The writer says that Jesus as our brother shared in the state of having flesh and blood. This is Bible euphemism for weakness <laughs> and frailty that we experience in humanity, right? Jesus didn't escape it and in fact endured it in a way that none of us will ever have to contemplate. Now just forgive me for a second, I'm gonna read a chunk of Old Testament for you right now because this is what Hebrews does. It connects our two testaments, right? It's a great work of biblical theology and I don't want us to skip over it, right? The writer quotes Psalm 22. Now we might go, oh, that's interesting, Psalm 22 and just move on, right? But he's quoting this to make his case. I love Psalm 22. It has a very triumphant ending, which we will share together in just a little bit. But the first part of Psalm 22 describes in great detail the brutality and suffering that the sent one of God would endure. Psalm 22 is what Jesus cries out from the cross. Did you know that Psalms in the first century weren't known by their number? Right? We've gone and interjected numbers in the order of worship, right? In, in the history of the, of, the, of the Jewish songbook. Psalms were known by their first line. And the first line of, uh, uh, and their most prominent line. And what does Jesus cry out from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he saying? He's saying, in other, in other words, turn with me to Psalm 22 
and you'll see who I am and you'll see what I am doing. And look at what it says. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance? I'm going to read this whole thing on purpose. And from my words of groaning, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I'm a worm. And not a man scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Do not be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. Think of Christ. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. I'm poured out like water. And all of my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. See Calvary? See the cross? My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away, my strength. Come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. When the scriptures tell us that Jesus joined us in the weakness of flesh and blood, it tells us that he went all the way down to the weakest of the weak. Now, though for many of you, your suffering is intense and profound, it is not lower than the suffering of Christ. Though you may be in a pit of despair, it is not a deeper pit of despair than the one that he subjected himself to. It is not a more stark feeling of weakness, of aloneness, of abandonment, of death. Our brother Jesus participated with us, for us, and as us. You're not alone. I was feeling quite desperate emotionally this week think as I think about it, I'm in a, a grief-induced depressive funk, right? Just struggling just to get out. It feels like a pit. Doesn't the scripture say he is acquainted with grief? And so he can sit with me in there and I don't need to have the strength to clamber out myself. My big brother knows exactly how it feels. And he went on to overcome it. Verse 14. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, 
Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Uh, Thirdly, as our unashamed big brother, Jesus defeated our enemy for us. As our big brother, Jesus doesn't just join us in our suffering. He doesn't just come and sit in the pit with us. He also defeats the enemy who wants to keep us bound to our suffering. Uh, In his death, which looks like bleak defeat, he actually defeats the one who tries to make us afraid of death and turns us into a people who can't lose. You see, this text makes it clear to us, Satan does have some power in this life. He has the power of death. He has the power, you know what that means? Of God's justice. He knows that God said, for the wages of sin is death, and so he has the power to go before the Lord and say, but they sinned, and so they deserve death. That's the power he has, and he uses that power to manipulate us, right, and to speak to us guilt and condemnation and fear over and over and over again. But the writer says, yes, but when Jesus walked out the grave, he said, Satan, you no longer have that power, and so they don't need to listen to you anymore. The one who tries to make us afraid of death, he is bound, right? And though he can taunt from the sideline, he has no real accusation of merit to make against Jesus' brothers and sisters. Now, can you imagine, oh my goodness, if you actually believe this, that Jesus actually defeated the one who makes us afraid of death and turns us into a people who can't lose, can you imagine how we then can be a people who say, to die is gain? Can you imagine how we would live if we actually believed that? Some of you are going to go, like, I'm not scared of death. I, I, I imagine if we did an audit of your life, you really, really are. Dictates how we spend our money. Dictates what we do with our relationships, our time. We're terrified of the end of our lives, the end of the lives of those around us. Because we struggle to believe that it's gain. Why? Because we struggle to believe that Jesus actually won. I don't have time today. I'm already on 29 minutes, and I know that drives you crazy, but we're trying to do this across six congregations, right? And the poor people in kids' ministry are like, I wonder how much longer he's got to go. Um, because they're looking after your kids, right? They just are your kids. Um, maybe when you get home, read 1 Corinthians 15. I love it. I was going to read it at length, but it's amazing, right? He says at the end of that, verse 56, he says, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at his conclusion to that. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. (laughs) Friends, if you don't fear death, then we can live actually as steadfast, immovable, and always excelling in God's work. Knowing that it isn't all in vain. Satan's going to do everything he can to try to get you to believe that this life is all there is. And then he's going to cause you to fear that you're somehow missing out on its fullness. And that's basically the foundation of all temptation. Our big brother Jesus beats him, though. <laughs> when he walks out of the tomb, he stands between. He stands between, right? Our tormentor and us and says, That's my little sister. That's enough. That's my little brother. That's enough, right? Now, (laughs) we get to live our life with the strut of those who know that their older brother beat up the schoolyard bully. On a cosmic scale. 
All right, there's still more. Goodness me. As our unashamed big brother, I can't even begin to describe this. How can we do this in 35 minutes? As our unashamed big brother, Jesus sings in the assembly with us. <laughs> I still haven't got my head around this fully, but it's kind of incredible. The writer is telling us that if the first part of Psalm 22 is about Jesus, then the second part of Psalm 22 is also about him. And here is what the second part of Psalm 22 says. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. This is crazy. But just, if we just believe this for a second, as we sing today, and we should sing. So when we get to the sermon, that's not the opportunity, right, to exit. That's like, uh, I, you miss out, friends, from your heart being formed by the opportunity to sing truths, right? And so as we sing today, as we settle our hearts on the goodness and faithfulness of God, there's a real sense, listen to me, I believe this to be true from the text, that Jesus sings with us, among us, as one of us, he has tasted what it feels like to suffer under the futility of the flesh, but he has also tasted what it is like to rely on the faithfulness of the Father. And so today as we sing of God's faithfulness and of God's kindness, it's like there's another voice with us, our brother's voice, Jesus singing with us in the assembly. That same brother who saved my bacon at that school, he and I had the privilege of being in a band together for seven years. Um, could have gone all the way if we were just better. Um, but <laughs> there's something special about being in a band with your brother. Right? And after a while, we developed a bit of a sixth sense of where songs were going and what they needed. And there was a very special way. Well, it sounded special in my ears. <laughs> Apparently not out there. Otherwise, again, I wouldn't be doing this. I'd be doing that. Um, but there was a very unique way in which our two voices, as weak as mine is, would combine in harmony. And there'd be moments when there's just two parts to the harmony, but it feels like there's more than just the two of you singing. I always loved the courage and the confidence I would get to hear my brother singing with me. It gave me so much joy. As we sing today, our brother sings with us. <laughs> there's another voice. We can be off pitch. You're perfected, Right? He'll come and sound amazing. One of the many reasons we shouldn't take lightly the privilege of gathering together and singing songs together. Friends, I know our worship culture is not everyone's cup of tea, right? Or cup of really bitter coffee. Let me make this American, right? You guys don't drink tea yet. You just drink weird brown water. Um, I love it here. Uh, I know for some it's too loud, I know for some it's too dark, I know for some the songs aren't what they used to, I, I get it, I get it all, right, I understand. It's not always going to be exactly what we want, but don't stand passive, sing, why? Your brother sings with you, sing. If it's too loud, sing it louder, right, drown it out. I can't hear my voice, shout, right, go for it, sing, don't hold back. Think of what is happening in the heavenlies, lastly. As our unashamed big brother, Jesus reaches out to help us. Why does Jesus do all of this for us? Well, look at what verse 16 says. 
It says, it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. He does it because we need help. (laughs) We aren't strong enough, and so we need one like us to rescue us. He reaches out to us to help us. He doesn't even do that for angels, but he does that for you. And he does that for me. Jesus is not ashamed to call you sister, to call you brother. Jesus is not ashamed of you. Even if you're ashamed of yourself. But are you ashamed of him? Are you accepting the way of the cross, the way of weakness? you might go, no, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm prepared to die for Jesus. Are you prepared to repent for Jesus? That's the real test. To accept your weakness, not your strength. To come clean with what a mess you are. Secure in the identity that your big brother has won for you. Are you not ashamed to do that? Then you're not ashamed of your brother. And he's not ashamed of you. What a brother we have. He shares his sanctification with us. He participates with us in our weakness. He defeats our ultimate enemy for us. He stands with us in the assembly when we can't raise a voice and he sings with us. And he reaches out to help us because he knows that we need help and he's not ashamed of that. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that you would do something with it today, that you would convince us somehow of this remarkable truth. I confess that sometimes these claims are so lofty that I can really struggle to believe them for myself. But Lord, what a thought that your son, your perfect son, is prepared to identify me as his brother, not as a slave, right? as a brother. Lord, that doesn't change me as much as it ought to. And so I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit today, you would start to bring a revival into this weary heart and into the hearts in this room so that we could start to actually believe that. That he didn't reach out to help angels as marvelous as they are. He reaches out to help the weak the weak like me, the weak like us. I pray that we would take his hand. I pray that we would receive his sanctification. Father, for those who haven't been living like part of the family, I pray that you would help us to trust in his holy sacrifice. You would help us to be bold enough with him as our brother to repent of our sins and to receive mercy. To do that publicly, to speak that out to others because we have no shame, because he's not ashamed of us, so we can't be ashamed of ourselves. Lord, I pray for those who are living in deep fear of death, whether that's the death of their own selves, whether that's the death of a dream, whether that's the death of a child, whether that's the death of a spouse. 
Oh, Father, I pray that you would remind them today of the resurrection power that has been won for them. That means that they can live in a way that says to die is gain for those who are in Christ. And that they would boldly proclaim the gospel and live with its certainty. Release us from the bondage of fear today, please, God. He is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Help us to believe it. In Jesus' name.